John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Dorora. We're business and trial lawyers with the B Hall Law Group in Columbus. Today, we're talking with John Saya, whose law practice focuses largely on defending people who are arrested or charged with operating a vehicle under the influence of alcohol. John is uh, John Saya is not only one of the better known attorneys in Columbus, but probably one of the most well-versed attorneys in Ohio when it comes to matters pertaining to uh, driving well under the influence. And I'm happy to say that he's a good friend of both John Gonzalez and mine. So welcome to the podcast, John Saya. Great. Glad to be here. Thank you uh, for having me on. John, let's start with some basics. Um, I've heard the uh, the uh, terms OVI, DUI, OMVI. Do those uh, mean anything different with regard to uh, at least Ohio law? Uh, they, they don't. In Ohio, uh, we use the acronym OVI, uh, operating a vehicle under the influence. But uh, other states use uh, different acronyms. Uh, OWI, DUI is probably the most common. Uh, but they all mean, mean the, uh, the same thing. Also, um, if uh, I was pulled over, say, in the city of Dublin or on 270 uh, by the State Highway Patrol or pulled over by the county sheriff, uh, is there a difference how the uh, court would view the uh, charges of an OVI? Uh, actually, there is. Um, this is especially so in the city of Columbus. So uh, each uh, city uh, may have different OVI laws, um, and, and some of those cities are different than state laws. So uh, if you're pulled over in a jurisdiction that's controlled by state law, then the law is going to be the same no matter which, uh, which court you're in. If you are uh, in a city and cited under the city code, it could vary a little bit as to what the courts will do. The most drastic difference um, is in the city of Columbus, where the city of Columbus has a lifetime look back. And what I'm referring to when I say lifetime look back is that state law and almost all other jurisdictions have what's called a 10-year look back period. It, so what, uh, when I refer to a 10-year look back, uh, that has to do with the number of OVI convictions that person has had in the last 10 years. And if you had prior convictions within the last 10 years, the sentencing uh, is enhanced and there's more severe penalties, uh, once again, depending on how many convictions you had. It also can enhance the level uh, of the offense from a misdemeanor to a felony. Now, Columbus is, is very peculiar uh, in the state of Ohio because it has a lifetime look back. So although because it's a city code law, it can't enhance the offense to a felony, it does substantially increase uh, penalties that you have had throughout your lifetime rather than just uh, just the 10 year look back. Also, um, is there a particular time of day or night or day of the week that police are more suspicious of uh, people when they pull them over as far as suspicion of OVI? Oh, absolutely. So when uh, law enforcement officers go through their DWI detection and field sobriety test training, uh, there is a large portion of the uh, initial chapters dedicated to the amount of uh, drunk drivers on the road between midnight and 4 a.m. And uh, according to the U.S. government and uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, 
at least 50% of drivers on the road on Friday and Saturday night, or technically Saturday morning and Sunday morning, from midnight to 4 a.m. would be under the influence of alcohol. John, if um, somebody is pulled over between those hours, say 1 a.m. on a Saturday morning, uh, can you tell us what they might expect the cop to do as uh, he gets out of he or she gets out of the car and approaches? Absolutely. So uh, when you're pulled over at that time of day, and that would just be about any any time of the week, uh, one of the first questions that the officer is going to ask after they ask for your uh, license, uh, registration, and, and insurance is going to be either have you had anything to drink tonight or if they detect an odor of, of alcohol, they're going to ask, how much have you had to drink tonight? So you're going to get that question when you're pulled over during those, those hours. Um, it's different than when being pulled over during the day. So usually the, the first shift, sometimes the second shift officers don't really have the OVI training uh, that they, they need, but almost all third shift officers are going to have that that type of training. So um, they're, they're trained to, to ask that question so that they can start building their case against you. John, I've heard you talk on prior occasions about these field sobriety tests. Why don't you tell us the names of those tests and describe them for us briefly? Um, the first one being the horizontal gaze nystagmus test or HGN test as it's commonly referred to. Second is what's called a walk and turn test, and the third is called uh, a one-leg stand test. There are only three standardized field sobriety tests, despite the fact that most law enforcement believe there's a lot more out there, um, but there's really only three that have been standardized. The biggest misconception by everyone, mostly by judges, is that they believe that these standardized field sobriety tests are for the purpose of, determine, of determining whether or not someone is under the influence. Uh, they are absolutely not for that purpose in no way, shape, or form. There's not a single study ever completed anywhere in the world that can relate the results of standardized field sobriety tests to uh, someone's ability to drive a car to their impairment level. Um, the sole stu the studies that were completed, all of the studies that were completed, uh, were for a determination of the probability that someone would test over a 0 .08 if given a blood or uh, or breath test um, upon completion of the the standardized field sobriety tests. Um, and that's just a huge misunderstanding because 99.9% .9 of law enforcement gets on the witness stand and testifies that they are to help determine someone's uh, level of impairment, which is just absolutely not true. Um, any expert that you would hire would, would state that uh, unequivocally, unequivocally on, the, on the witness stand. Uh, so we have that big problem uh, that we have to deal with all the time. But now getting back to your question about what the, the tests are. So the horizontal gaze nystag the horizontal gaze nystagmus test is a test um, where the officer is looking for a nystagmus, which is defined as a jerking of the eyes um, as your eyes move horizontally. So the officer, without going into great detail, makes sweeps um, uh, with his finger or pen or some stimulus. Um, about uh, 12 to 15 inches um, from the from your nose, uh, moving that stimulus horizontally, and he's looking for for certain clues as your 
uh, as that test is being conducted and as your eyes are moving from side to side. Um, the second test is the walk and turn test. Um, this is one that we're most familiar with, uh, nine steps heel to toe. Um, turn, walk nine steps back. Um, the officer is looking for eight specific clues in, in that test. Uh, and then the last test is what's called the one leg stand, where you stand on one, uh, one, foot, uh, one foot raised and uh, for 30 seconds. And the officer is looking for four, four clues during that test. So um, again, none of them have to do with level of impairment or your ability to drive a car. Um, solely the probability of if you were taken down the station and given a test, would you test over the limit? John, uh, are all officers trained the same way to administer those tests? And how do you know so much about them? So the, all officers are supposed to be the trained way. I'm sorry, let me state that, restate that. Uh, all officers are supposed to be trained the same way. There is only one manual for training of officers. Uh, it's the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, DWI Detection and Standardized Field Sobriety Testing Manual. Um, that actually should be used, in, and only that should be used to train all officers in the United States. Um, with regard to the question about how I know so much about the Standardized Field Sobriety Test, I received my uh, first training back in 1997. Um, with regard to standardized field sobriety testing. In other words, I, I took the, the 70, uh, I'm sorry, the 24 hour course uh, that the officers are required to complete before uh, they can say that they're properly trained to uh, administer the standardized field sobriety test. Uh, since that time, I've taken numerous courses with regard to standardized field sobriety testing. Uh, I am an instructor uh, for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration program with regard to DWI detection and standardized field sobriety testing. Uh, I've taken the uh, instructor course uh, several times. I have taught um, the course DWI detection standardized field sobriety testing uh, numerous times uh, around the country. And uh, I have also um, have and read all of the studies related to uh, DWI detection and standardized field sobriety testing, which is not part of any course, but uh, something that uh, I felt I needed to be aware of to see exactly what the meaning is behind these tests. John, uh, my uh, assumption is is that most people get convicted or end up pleading guilty on the strength of the breathalyzer, not the field sobriety test. Is that accurate? Um, Yes and no. Um, when uh, uh, many cases do not involve the uh, breath test, uh, the breath alcohol test. So in those cases, the uh, state or the city, the prosecutors require to go forward without, uh, without the test. So they're relying solely on um, the standardized field sobriety test and, and you know, other evidence uh, admissions by uh, the defendant and things like that. Um, when you do have a test, it makes it very difficult uh, in Ohio to be successful in winning that case if you're a defendant because you provided just about all of the evidence that the state needs uh, to get a conviction. So uh, where there is a test, uh, it's very unfortunate, but most people don't think they have a defense, so uh, they go ahead and, and plead guilty. Um, 
this is just especially true if if council's higher that they they uh, council is just not really familiar with the law in Ohio or the way that uh, breath uh, alcohol testing device uh, should be used. Hey, let's follow up with the question that John Gonzalez posited. I've been stopped. I've been asked to get out of the car. I'm asked to do a field sobriety test. Let's say I'm smart enough to say, officer, I'd like to decline. What's next? Um, there, in all likelihood, the officer will place you under arrest uh, if he smells alcohol. Um, I should go back and again, without going into too much depth, um, the, the other thing about the DWI uh, detection and standardized field sobriety testing course that most people skip over uh, is that there's one uh, session out of 16 that deal with standardized field sobriety testing. There's a number of other sessions that the participants have to go through uh, for DWI detection. Uh, there's three phases of DWI detection. Uh, there's the driving phase, um, which looks for different uh, uh, traffic infractions. The most surprising is that speeding is not one of them. Driving too slow is one of them. Uh, but but you hear so many times that the person was pulled over for speeding, and that was their first sign that the person may have been impaired. Uh, there couldn't be anything further from the truth. Um, then the officer is supposed to watch uh, about how, you know, how the person pulls over once the siren is hit or once the lights go on. Uh, they're supposed to do some other type of testing, um, divided attention skill testing when they're talking to the driver, asking them for their driver's license, insurance, registration. While the, the subject's looking for that, they're supposed to ask them some odd questions like, what's your middle initial or do you know what time it is? And if the person has to stop their physical task of looking for their you know, registration and insurance to answer the question, that's something the officer uses. Once asked to get out of the car, the officer is supposed to be looking at uh, the, the subject's actions in getting out of the car. Did they you know, have to hold on to the car for balance and things like that? Did they stagger walking and stuff? So the officer is gathering all this information um, and if, if the officer believes, and then odor of alcohol uh, also um, would, be, would be another one. Um, but uh, if the officer has enough information to, uh, or evidence to believe that he has probable cause that you're under the influence, then whether you do the field sobriety test or not, the officer will place you under arrest. At that point in time, uh, that kicks in the law with regard to the civil aspect or the administrative aspect of OVI law. So once you're placed under arrest for OVI, for I'm sorry, once you're placed under arrest for an OVI, the officer is required to read some statutory language on a form that's called the BMV form uh, 2255. And the officer has to read the back of that to you and that explains your rights. Uh, the fact that the officer is gonna ask you to submit to a test that uh, if you take that test and you test over the legal limit, which is a 0 0.08 uh, for, for breath, which is the most common uh, test used, uh, that your license will be suspended for 90 days. However, if you refuse to take that test, your license will be suspended for uh, one year. And that's on a first offense OVI. Those penalties are different if you had prior OVI. So the officer is gonna read that to you. Um, and then you got to make a decision based off that whether or not you're going to submit to a test. So you have the 
90 day suspension or the one year suspension. Um, so they don't have to tell you though that if you take a test and test over, you've given them just about all the evidence they need for a conviction and then the minimum uh, driver's license suspension is going to be one year anyway. Um, so the, the way the laws are designed, and I tell all my clients this, you got to imagine where we're living in a world where every law drafted, if you take all the OVI laws out there in the state of Ohio, that laws are designed for, for two things. Number one, to scare you into taking a breath test. And then number two, whether you took the test or not, to plead guilty because there's other relief that you can get um, by pleading guilty. We, we live in a, in a state where unfortunately, uh, we have counties where judges will not grant limited driving privileges until you plead guilty or unless you plead guilty. So uh, you're charged with an OVI, you refuse the test, you're under a year license suspension, you go to court, you say, can I drive? And the, uh, the, the judge says, no. And then the prosecutor says, you know, the judge will give you privileges if you plead guilty here. So uh, <laughs> unfortunate circumstances. We have a lot of rural counties in Ohio where, you know, that, that, that'll that pull a job. So, you know, the prosecutors and the courts are involved in getting these people to plead guilty to OVI. It's very unfortunate. John, with regard to the uh, breathalyzer test, if you refuse the test, <clears throat> the case goes forward, and then a year or two later, you're pulled over again and you refuse the test. Is there some type of enhanced penalty or some type of um, uh, issue that, that arises uh, with just a refusal a second time or a third time? Yes. So if it's within the last 10 years, those sanctions, um, the, the administrative code sanctions or the civil sanctions, the, um, not only does the length of the suspension increase, but also um, the time within which you can't drive increases also. So uh, with each subsequent refusal, there's a look back of 10 years under the state law um, that, that deals with the, the uh, refusal of, of, uh, of testing after your arrest. So absolutely there is. I want to go back to uh, talking with a police officer. If you are concerned that you've been drinking too much and you get asked the question, have you been drinking? I don't think most people realize that they are allowed to decline to answer. And so correct me if I'm wrong, John, it's okay to say, officer, I'd like to not ask, answer any questions this evening. Am I right about that? 100%. What I advise is just uh, say that you'd like to speak to your attorney before you would ask any, before you would answer any questions. Uh, you know, the basis for that is I'm thinking way down the road at a trial. Uh, if a juror hears that someone said they just wanted to speak to their lawyer and the officer says no, uh, that, that's a great piece of evidence for the jury to hear. So I always tell, tell everybody when I speak to groups or, you know, uh, clients or tell clients, advise them for in the future to not answer that question. Just say, I'd like to speak to my lawyer before I answer any of your questions. John, with regard to body cameras and things like that that are now prevalent with our officers, how has that uh, changed uh, your job as a defense attorney if your client is in full view on a camera? Um, it, it depends on the case. Um, so there, there's a, a, a 
most of the time it helps out. Um, I mean, I get these police reports and you read through the police reports and just based off what the police reports say, you might as well just go in and plead all of your clients guilty because 99% of the report is the same thing, written up the same way, just a different name plugged in. Um, and they go through all the different things that the officer, you know, believes or claims that they, they witnessed uh, during the stop. Um, I would say over three quarters of the time, video is usually helpful uh, to the defense of a case. And then now that we have body cams and everything is being recorded, uh, it even even makes it uh, even makes it more helpful because then all of the conversation uh, is being taken down. And then the best thing is, believe it or not, it's not what you hear them say. Sometimes it's what they don't say. So when they turn their mics off again, that's something that really does bother judges and jurors. Um, when the officers are supposed to have their their you know mics working and they shut them off for some reason or another. That raises a lot of suspicion. So uh, the body cams overall have have helped. Um, the one thing that I will say uh, with regard to the body cams is they they are so distorted and have a fisheye effect on them that. Um, when you're watching your client complete like a walk and turn or get out of their vehicle walking back to the cruiser or whatever, it looks like they're not, I'm not going to say swaying, but that they're not walking in a straight line, that they're walking in a big, you know, curved line over to the, over to the car. So, um, you know, trying to explain that to a judge or jury that if you, you know, you got to pick two points out and realize that the person is walking in a straight line and not walking in a big, uh, arc. But, uh, other than that, they're they're generally uh, very helpful. John, can we uh, uh, change the subject a little bit to the DUI checkpoints? Um, say a person is driving through town and they notice a checkpoint up ahead, have some concerns about how much they've consumed. Can they turn around and leave, or is there some point where the police can uh, uh, go and get drivers that try to avoid those DUI checkpoints? Well, a, a turnoff point um, is part of a DUI checkpoint. There has to be one between the notice and the, the checkpoint. Uh, so if you do that legally and if you're uh, aware enough of the circumstances to make that turn uh, to avoid the check, then uh, you, you'll be okay. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, most people that are driving, they don't know that. So they're they're driving down the road. They see the the checkpoint they're going to it if you pass that turnoff point and then try and turn around or or you know escape in some way shape or form then the police are, are coming after you uh they will come after you down the road too if you use that turnoff uh i've seen that happen before even though you're not supposed to um but uh yeah trying to get avoid a dui checkpoint after the turnoff is that creates some problems for you is there a way to know where those DUI checkpoints are in advance? Are they, do the uh, law enforcement have to publish those? Yes, law enforcement has to publish those. So, um, you know, we used to go searching for them back in the day, but now all the news channels, uh, as soon as they're, they're released, they're all over the, uh, the local news usually, but they're also listed on the, uh, the, the local law enforcement website or the Highway Patrol website. Uh, so they do have to be announced. Every one of them has to. I got a double-barreled question for you, John. The first is, outside of what's 
not been happening because of the coronavirus, just fewer people traveling. Has the frequency of arrests for OVI increased or decreased over the last, let's say, five to 10 years? And the second question is, am I correct that millennials are more attuned to the risk of driving and, or drinking and driving? So uh, OVIs in Ohio were going up uh, quite drastically over the past 10 years, with the exception of uh, more recent uh, months here, not before the, the whole uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but they're actually going down in Ohio. So um, that was kind of an interesting, interesting trend. Um, not sure why it was less law enforcement involvement or less people, uh, you know, on the roads uh, after after drinking. Uh, the the increase was due to enforcement of uh, driving under the influence of drugs, not so much alcohol. So alcohol arrests were actually on a downward trend, while uh, driving under the influence of drugs or a combination of drugs or alcohol um, had increased. Uh, quite a bit. So uh, law enforcement is getting more attuned to uh, people who are driving under the influence of drugs and uh, doing a lot more checking uh, into what uh, the person may have ingested other, other than alcohol. Uh, but uh, sometime from, from mid-2019 uh, till the end of 2019, they were actually on the, on the decline. With regard to millennials, I don't think it's so much that they're in tune um, to not driving uh, after drinking, but they utilize uh, Uber and Lyft uh, and other you know methods of transportation so much. I mean, you know, I have three daughters, and the amount of money that that they spend on Uber just is baffling to me. But you know, after I look at it, it it's you know, it's uh, way less. You know, a five-year period, ten-year period would be less than the consequences of having an OVI conviction. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not so I'm not sure that they're they're just attuned to it. It's just the way that that millennials uh, and the younger generation are living. Um, it's it's all about Uber and Lyft. John, with regard to clients of yours that have had multiple convictions, is there any explanation for that? Is there some uh, character trait that is common with somebody who's had two, three, or four convictions? Yeah, once you get into the multiple convictions, that usually, you know, signals a problem, and especially within a quicker time span. I mean, you know, I've rep represented clients who may have had an OBI when they were, you know, 19, 20, 21, and then again when they're 50, then, you know, they're not so much worried about that uh, particular client. But when, you know, someone has, you know, an OVI and then two, three years later picks up another OVI, um, that, that, you know, it, it definitely is a signal that that's, you know, uh, outside of my area of expertise, but they all get a recommendation to go see a counselor. Um, and, and they're going to get that from the court anyway. So I feel comfortable, you know, stepping out of my lawyer shoes and, and putting on those shoes and saying, I suggest you go see a counselor because um, I can't imagine any judge, and I've never seen a judge uh, not require some type of uh, assessment on your you know, second or third offense after uh, just a few years. Am I correct in saying, John, that you've got two categories of potential clients? 
those who just have a significant drinking problem and a bunch of other people who just didn't use their noggin one evening? Yes, absolutely. Without question. And you got to kind of sort through and figure out what the, what the circumstances are. And, and I utilize uh, assessments more and more uh, these days, especially, you know, you can do a telephone assessment these days for relatively inexpensive uh, amount of money with, uh, you know, with certain facilities. So um, it, it's, you know, and, and again, the age is part of it. And, you know, someone comes in and they get, they get uh, arrested on their 21st birthday. Well, you know, that, that's one thing, you know, the, the kid has nothing in their past, uh, any, no other alcohol related convictions or underage drinkings or anything like that. Just a set of circumstances, you know, you have the 60 year old guy who comes in, you know, after out to dinner celebrating their an anniversary or something, you know, they're, they're not the ones you're worried about, but the, the ones that have the, uh, underage drinking charges. They have several OBIs on the record or several alcohol-related offense um, offenses. Then, then they're the ones that that you're more concerned about, and definitely recommend uh, an assessment and some counseling. John, my understanding is this area of practice is very competitive. A lot of lawyers, a lot of uh, internet advertising for this type of business. Can you give our listeners a sense of, um, of what it costs for an attorney to do this type of work if they uh, have an OBI and, and let's say they call your office? Yeah, so it, it truly is all over all over the place uh, in, in Franklin County I can speak to. I mean, there's lawyers out there charging as little as $500 to represent someone on an OBI. Um, in my office, it run anywhere between $3,500 and $6,000 depending on which attorney uh, from my office that the individual chose to to retain. Uh, for example, my my fee on a first time OVI offense is six thousand dollars. I have um, also uh, heard that uh, one of the things that lawyers should do for a client if they do take the breathalyzer test is see if the test is valid. Can you talk about the validity of those tests, or if there's any? opportunity uh, in this day and age to contest the validity of them? Uh, I, I can, and it gets quite complicated uh, because of the law that, that we have in Ohio relating back to 1986 Ohio Supreme Court case um, that is just uh, highly misunderstood um, by, by uh, prosecutors and, and many of the judges around the state. Um, I remember when I first started practicing law, I was told that I could never challenge uh, a breath test in Ohio. Um, and that's what all prosecutors, what uh, all judges told me. Um, and uh, as I got more and more involved um, in this OVI defense business, I started uh, carrying around a copy of that case with me, State versus Vega. And uh, I started presenting at seminars, and I would ask the judges to uh, raise their hand if they ever actually read the case, State versus Vega. And I don't think I ever had a hand raised. So um, I, I carry a copy of it around with me and, and highlight the portion where it says that defense counsel is allowed uh, to challenge uh, breath tests. Basically, uh, in a nutshell, we are not allowed to challenge the science behind the breath testing device under this case. Um, so we are not allowed to challenge whether or not the science of um, uh, infrared spectroscopy 
uh, is a valid science. Um, and again, that, that probably can still be challenged if we took the matter over to, to federal court. Some defendant had a whole lot of money because we should be allowed to challenge any evidence. Um, but you know, back in the 80s, the Supreme Court said we couldn't. However, the case goes on to say that we can challenge whether or not the machine was in proper working order, whether or not this, the, the proper methodology was used to get to the results, uh, things like that. So we have had a lot of success. When I say we, there's a, a group of OVI defense attorneys from around the state that got together to start challenging uh, some of these breath tests. And there's a, there's a, a breath testing instrument out there right now. Uh, which got a lot of press called the Intoxilizer 8000, uh, which the state of Ohio went ahead and purchased 700 or 800 of these and had been trying to utilize these tests, uh, testing machines since 2009 and haven't been very successful because uh, the, methodology, the methodology that's used to get a result from that machine is flawed, drastically flawed. And I've heard people joking about a mutual friend drinking too much, getting in the car, getting stopped, and it's treated like a funny story. It's stunning because you're in the same room and everybody knows what you do for a living. So are, is there just a social, excuse me, is there just a certain part of society that's tone deaf to the problem? How do you respond to all that? Or what do you think when you hear those kind of things going on? Well, usually when you hear those things, it's around people that are drinking. Um, <laughs> and you know, alcohol impairs your judgment. So someone who uh, probably wouldn't be laughing about something like that, or someone who under most circumstances would say that they would never get behind the wheel of a car, you know, after drinking, uh, they consume the alcohol, their judgment's impaired, and they, they do silly and stupid things like get behind uh, the wheel of a car and, and drop. Um, you know, the one thing that, that I always talk about um, is just the, the collateral consequences of an OVI conviction. I mean, they are just devastating. Um, a few years back, a couple, four or five years ago, I was doing a telephone interview for life insurance for myself. Um, so, you know, back in the day, they used to come out and question you and draw blood and everything else. Uh, this one was done completely by telephone, the, the interview. And uh, they asked me if a uh, question said, Will you ever, have you ever been convicted of a DUI? And I said, the answer is no, but stop. What happens if I said yes to that? And the, the woman says, hold on a second. I can hear her typing away on the computer. And she says, well, it says here that you would not qualify for life insurance for five years with this particular company with an OVI conviction. Um, you know, I had a, uh, a call from a, a, an individual who was coming back from Russia to uh, Ohio, and he flew to Russia from Ohio through Canada and somehow escaped through being the, pegged as having a, a prior OVI conviction. But on the way back from Russia uh, to Ohio, he had a stop in Canada, and while going through customs or passport control or whatever, uh, was flagged for his prior DUI conviction. They made him return to Russia before allowing him to come back into uh, the United States. They were not allowing him to spend, you know, get out of that security zone in the airport in, uh, uh, in Canada. So, 
uh, had to fly back to Russia and take a different uh, different route home that didn't go through Canada. Um, I represent a lot of people with professional licenses. Their professional licenses are at stake. Uh, truck drivers probably get hit the hardest and the argument is that they should because they should know better. But I'm talking about a truck driver who is driving their personal vehicle off hours, off the clock from their job. They still uh, lose their, their commercial driver's license. Um, I mean, think about salesmen who, uh, um, you know, uh, I talk about just having that piece of plastic and I refer to that driver's license. So if you're arrested before you're even convicted, the officer takes your driver's license, sends it into the BMV and it's destroyed. And you have a job as a salesman and you have to travel and rent a car um, and you don't have that, that plastic driver's license, you're not renting a car. So um, the, the consequences are just, just so enormous. It's, it's incredible. John, when you look at uh, going to court with your clients, all of the different jurisdictions where a person can be pulled over, how much difference is there with, with how judges treat the penalties that uh, will be imposed? Let's just think of a first offense. Uh, all, all over the board. Um, as I talked about earlier, some judges won't even allow you to drive, uh, drive a car, even with limited privileges for work. Um, unless you plead guilty to the offense, you have to first plead guilty, then they'll, they'll give you driving privileges. So they, they hold that over your head and that's against the law. And if you can get the judge to go on record stating that you will win in the court of appeals, which, uh, I have had to do before where a judge, uh, mistakenly and just wasn't thinking and put that on the record. Um, and then you, you, you know, that, that by, by most court of, uh, courts of appeal said judge can't do that. So, um, but, but my, most judges know that and they won't say that they just, uh, the record would show that in, in, you know, every case they ever handled, they didn't grant limited driving privileges until the person pled guilty. Um, as far as sentencing, it could be all over the place. There is minimum sentencing, uh, standards for OVI convictions. For example, a first offense OVI, the court is required to have the person either spend 72 consecutive hours in jail or complete a 72-hour certified driver intervention program. These are programs that are conducted in facilities or hotels around the state. For 72 hours, you cannot leave the facility uh, while going through the program. There is also a minimum one-year license suspension, uh, and then there's a minimum $375 fine. That is all required. So you would get that as a minimum in any court. Uh, what people never really talk about is maximum. So the maximum penalty is 180 days in jail on a first offense, a three-year license suspension, or a $1,000 and a uh, $1,075 fine. So that's where the judges uh, kind of can be all over the place and. Uh, penalize you more depending on the circumstances uh, of the OVI case. Uh, they can place you on probation uh, with uh, all kind of requirements uh, to, to get through a probationary period. They have these SCRAM devices now, uh, the, the secured um, uh, remote alcohol monitoring uh, devices. So uh, they can order you to wear that so you don't consume any alcohol at all while you're on probation. So. Uh, the penalties can get quite stiff. I assume for the most part that if somebody has had 
a breathalyzer. And let's put aside the intoxilite, the what's it called? The intoxilizer 8000. Correct. Yeah. Put that one aside. If someone's had the other test, that's a tougher case to try where there is an arrest and an attempted conviction based on other factors, the field sobriety, police observations. What does that kind of trial look like? What's the strategy? Well, the, the strategy there is to, first of all, to try and educate the jury on the fact that the field sobriety tests are meaningless where there's not a chemical test for blood alcohol content. Um, so that, that's the most difficult part. Um, if, an, if an attorney doesn't know the standardized field sobriety test purpose and the studies behind them and the rest of the manual that I talked about earlier, um, they're not going to get very far. Um, I can almost 100% of the time get the officer to admit that these tests were designed solely for to determine the probability of someone testing over the limit of taking a test. They have nothing to do uh, with uh, the person's ability to drive a car. Um, and then I use the other parts of the manual that we discussed, the driving clues, the personal contact clues, the uh, visual uh, clues and things like that to show that there was a lot more things that are consistent with sobriety rather than someone being uh, under the influence. I, I try not to let the, let the word impaired or impairment be used um, because that's not what we're there for. The, the word impairment is not in the, the definition uh, of driving under the influence. It's whether or not uh, the, the person has exhibited uh, factors that would show that they weren't uh, capable of driving the car. So, um, it, for example, I like to put on a board, there's uh, 26 driving clues, which means, you know, if my person uh, weaved outside their lane one time, well, that, there was 25 other clues that the officer should have been looking for that they missed. So that's more consistent with sobriety than someone um, being under the influence. And then there's uh, 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 16 uh, clues that uh, the officer looks for with his contact, initial contact with the driver. So they say odor of alcohol or something like that. Well, there's 15 other clues that the officer should have been looking for that weren't there. Um, so when you start putting that on the board and, and going through that, um, before you even get to the field sobriety test, you know, should there, they have even been performed, if they're meaningless, they're meaningless. So um, when, a, when a jury sees that, that there's a lot more actions consistent with sobriety rather than being under the influence, that works, works well for your client. John, uh, a person always has the option to plead to the charge or go to trial. Do you find that most judges will be consistent in the penalty, um, even if there's a plea or a trial, or do you find that there's some enhancement if you go to trial or penalties? Most are consistent. Most involve the same sanctions, whether you're convicted after a trial um, or whether you plead guilty. There are you know, certain circumstances where there's aggravating uh, factors um, that might come into play. There's times when you don't want the judge to see the video uh, on the case because of one reason or another. But uh, most of the time, um, the, the, the sanctions are the same, whether it's after trial or, or beforehand, with the exception of if you lose at trial, you, they tack on the jury costs, which, which could be quite expensive uh, 
might be you know the fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred dollars more in costs um, if you if you go to trial and lose. But other than that, the sanctions are, are generally the same. As I, I talked about earlier, the video most times is favorable. So I'd rather have the judge see the video on most occasions than read the police report as to what the officer wrote in there because uh, the, the the officer usually embellishes things on the uh, on the police report to help help you know sustain a, a plea in a case rather than go to trial. John Sayo, what do you do when somebody calls you and you interview him and you find out that he's got four prior either convictions or arrests? What do you do? So I, I always start with having that person get an assessment done. If they call me and they have that many prior convictions, uh, there there's an underlying issue there. Um, so sometimes drugs, sometimes alcohol, sometimes a combination, but I leave that up to the professionals to do, to, to determine what the, what the problem is. I know you've got, I think three daughters, am I right? Yes. So what's a father's advice for three daughters about drinking and driving? Don't call me if you get pulled over. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now my, my, my daughters are well aware of the circumstances. I, I, tell, them, uh, I tell them to look around uh, at what they have uh, material-wise and what uh, they've been to do through their, their entire life. And I tell them that's because people uh, make poor decisions. John, it was uh, wonderful to see you and wonderful to talk to you about this area. Uh, certainly, it's uh, one where a lot of lawyers are uh, not well-versed in it and, 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 frankly, a little bit afraid of it. So uh, it's good to know that you're out there, that you're uh, representing people, and that you do such a fine job. And, again, appreciate you coming on and talking to our listeners. Great. Uh, happy to do it, and uh, thank you for, uh, for asking me to do so. Lawyer Up will be back in a few weeks with another important legal issue. I invite you to subscribe to my blog, Consider This by JD. Until next time, remember to Lawyer Up. So long.